Hi, this is Whitney Merrill. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. It's my pleasure to be here talking about privacy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. And this is episode 256 for January 24th, 2022. And also welcome to Data Privacy Week. Today is the first day of Data Privacy Week. And until this year, it was just Data Privacy Day. And so now we have expanded it to a full week. And uh, to bookend Data Privacy Week here on the show, I have two back-to-back interviews with two great women about privacy. More on that in just a little bit. So a couple quick news things. First of all, if you are still, for some reason, a Chrome user, update Chrome. There's been a whole bunch of really nasty bugs found in it. It should auto update, but sometimes you got to restart the app to kind of force it to do the update. So uh, if you're still using Chrome, then make sure you get it updated to the latest version because there's some nasty bugs in it. But, you know, maybe think about switching to Firefox. Uh, If you're on Mac, you may already be using Safari, but I personally recommend Firefox. For these kind of news things, these kind of breaking security or privacy things that might require a quick turnaround on your part, Uh, Since my podcast comes out every week on Monday, sometimes that doesn't line up well, then that's a great reason to follow me on Twitter and or Facebook. If there's some sort of breaking news, that's where I tend to post. So that might be a reason you might want to follow me there. Honestly, I really should start posting those things to Mastodon as well, because I hate to push anybody to use Twitter or Facebook more than necessary. I kind of have to be there, you know, so I can reach more people. But, uh, you know, if you're trying to get off of those things, I hate to give you one more reason to stay. So uh, I guess going forward, I will try to post to all three of those venues. So if you haven't heard of Mastodon, it's a much more privacy centric kind of a Twitter sort of a thing. Well, it's social media. It's kind of, it's got elements of Facebook and Twitter, but it's a, it's a newsfeed. It's a timeline. It lets you post things and follow people and, that sort of thing. So anyway, you might want to check out Mastodon as well. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and go to my contact page, you'll see all of my social media information right there. Also, this isn't really news, but I want to bring it up because I'm probably not going to cover it in the show, but I ran across a really good article and I think I did post this on both Twitter and Facebook. It's from Lifehacker and it was called The Gamification of Everything. And it's a really insightful article. And I think it's a good look at what is going on today to try to get you to buy things, do things, influence you in some way. Uh, and I, I just found it fascinating. So anyway, there's a link in the show notes to that. And I like I said, I'm probably not going to cover it on the show. It was kind of a long article, but well worth a read. So uh, you might want to check that out. So a quick reminder, uh, I'll say a little bit more after the interview, but basically one week left to turn in your annual listener survey. I really, really love to hear from you guys. I do take it all seriously. I'm already making changes based on things that people have already submitted. So I'm also giving away some prizes to uh, incentivize you to do so. So again, after the interview, I will say a little bit more about that and if just some other news items related to me and the book and other things like that. So make sure you stay tuned after the interview for that information. Now, about the interview. So today we're going to be talking with Whitney Merrill. She's a privacy attorney uh, who has worked for the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States, as well as some private companies. And she's got some really interesting perspectives on privacy and privacy law. And of course, because we're talking about that, we're going to be rattling off the usual privacy regulation, alphabet soup. And uh, I'm not going to define them all here. We've talked about them recently. But just kind of keep in mind that GDPR, that's the the one for the European Union, whereas whereas CCPA and CPRA and FERPA and HIPAA and all those things are U.S.-based privacy and data protection laws. And I do mention Flock, uh, Google's Flock. That's F-L-O-C, Federated Learning of Cohorts. <laughs> horrible, horrible retronym. But that was Google's attempt to try to make data collection about browsing habits more private that looks like it's probably not going to see the light of day, at least not in its current form. But anyway, when I talk about Flock, that's what we're talking about. So there's your little kind of glossary heading into our interview. Uh, But let's not waste any more time. Let's uh, let's get to the interview with Whitney Merrill. Whitney Merrill is a data protection officer, privacy attorney, hacker, and co-founder of the Crypto and Privacy Village at DEF CON. She loves privacy and is glad the world is getting excited about it, too. Welcome to the show, Whitney. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's Data Privacy Week and perfect time to have a privacy expert on here. So why don't you start us off? Tell us a little bit, you know, you've worked actually both in um, in the private sector as a privacy lawyer and with the U.S. government. So what, you know, what drew you to privacy as a profession and, and maybe what does privacy mean to you? That's a really great question. I think privacy's always been kind of core to my interests. Actually, much of my youth and, and in high school, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so <laughs> I, I'm still sad that that dream did not come true. Although I feel like maybe if I strike it rich one day, I can pay uh, somebody to take me up. But it really started all in high school. I was really fascinated by the rights to be anonymous on the internet and kind of what that entailed. I've kind of told this anecdote in other places before, but I was horribly bullied in high school. And when I was trying to figure out who was doing it, these questions of how and why Mm. your rights to be anonymous really kind of came up for me. And I thought, well, why is that? Why don't people know? How do computers work? Well, you know, what is an IP address? All of those kinds of questions converged. And ultimately, when I went to college, I, I focused in public policy but I had an advisor there who introduced me to the Electronic Frontier Foundation mm-hmm. and, you know, the connection of civil liberties to technology and kind of the rest was history. It really ultimately I, I interned for the Electronic Frontier Foundation my, after my first year in law school and fell in love with the security community when I went to DEF CON for the first time. And so it really was DEF CON where I was like, OK, I should be doing security and privacy mm-hmm. as it relates to technology. and basically built my career since then. Um, And that's all pre-GDPR before, you know, privacy law was as big as it is now. Right. I don't know. It seems to be that over the, you know, maybe the last two or three years, people started to care more about their privacy uh, and worry more about the data economy. I, I, it feels like there was a turning point. I'm, I'm not really sure what that was. I certainly thought there would have been more of a response to the Snowden revelations when they happened and they just, there weren't. Where do you think we are right now in terms of like the average person's views on privacy and, and what do you feel is driving their feelings? That's a really great question. I think there are a series of things. I think GDPR was one big part of mm-hmm. getting people to be aware that there are such things as privacy rights and mm-hmm. that there are countries in the world or nations in the world that believe that privacy is a human right and that it's not just something that you can give up and relinquish and and you know, not have to worry about, or there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. And so I think GDPR, I mean, it was all over the news. People were talking about it. What does that mean for the U.S.? How do we compare? I think that that was one kind of start to people thinking, okay, I, I should think about privacy or care about it a little bit more. I think second is a lot of companies responded in giving privacy rights to all users around the world. It was easier mm-hmm. to just give those rights to everyone instead of, you know, say, oh no, it's only for people right. based in Europe. And <laughs> right. as a result, I think people saw those rights given to them and they thought, well, I should get more of this. This should be a thing here in the US. And I think that's a big part of why people think about it a lot more. Because I actually see a lot of misconceived notions around privacy rights where people are like, I have the right to do this. And you're like, actually, technically you don't. And that's problematic. You think you do, but the law actually has a lot further to go, especially in the United States, to guarantee those privacy rights, which I think is just one small component of, you know, protecting privacy. Yeah, as you described it, it's almost it's like being in like an abusive relationship for a long time. You, you get used to it, and then when you get out of it and get into like a real relationship, like oh wow, oh that feels good. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a, there's a, there's a light at the other side of this. It could have been better. Yeah. Yeah. And the United States was one of the first, I mean, an early player in privacy laws as far as, you know, highly regulated industries. There's HIPAA, there's GLBA, which is Gremlin-H-Bliley, which is for financial data. Mm -hmm. There's FCRA for credit reporting data. And all of those give some sort of privacy-esque rights or, you know, privacy protections around the data. And at the time, it was like, well, there's a privacy law to protect these highly regulated or highly sensitive areas of law. But now you look back on them and they do nothing in comparison to what the standards are now. And they're really extremely out of date in comparison and they don't quite go as far as people are hoping them to. And so when we're talking about new laws in California, like the California Consumer Privacy Act and its predecessor, CPRA, 
they carve out all of these highly regulated areas, HIPAA, GLBA, and the credit report, Fair Credit Reporting Act, primarily because they don't, the law doesn't want to be preempted by federal law, mm. but also because those areas, like people have this general sense and they've built these entire compliance frameworks around those laws. So right. I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but it's to say there's a lot of catching up to do. And in the U.S., it's like very, very sectorial, which makes it really hard and problematic to say these are what my rights are. Right, right. Yeah. There have been several famous or maybe infamous quotes from big tech leaders uh, over the years, basically saying, you know, privacy is dead. Get over it. Uh, what <laughs> one of them actually kind of said that, you know, but more recently, you know, even Google, Google and Facebook have kind of changed their rhetoric concerning the value of privacy. And, you know, maybe that is partially in the response to GDPR or maybe consumer sentiment changing. But, you know, they seem to be trying to make some concessions, you know, Google's flock thing, which I don't know if that's going to take off or not. And, you know, Facebook trying to use more Indian encryption. What do you what do you make of those of those gestures? Are, are they sincere? Or are they just trying to maybe stave off regulation? I think they're trying to stave off regulation. I also think that they're trying to control the regulation. So mm -hmm. if you know that regulation is inevitable, having a voice in the conversation to steer it in whatever direction you'd like it to go is pretty much your only choice. And so what I think is happening is both of those players have very privacy invasive business models, which is to collect as much as they possibly can about you and then sell advertising to target you to buy more things or to do more things. And that is if regulators draft legislation that puts that business model at risk, it's huge for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think for a long time, oh, privacy is dead. Don't worry about it. It was probably along the lines when you weren't hearing whispers around privacy regulation. But the the reality is, and and you know, to go to your earlier question, why do we think more people are talking about privacy? Well, if every other country in the world is having the conversation about having an omnibus privacy legislation or, or privacy law, and folks like the, the European Union are saying, actually, it's illegal for you to transfer data to a country where they do not have similar or adequate privacy protections, and you need to guarantee those, you can no longer, you know, push off that conversation about an omnibus privacy law, because it's actually causing really a lot of thrash for mm. businesses and companies sure. to be able to just, you know, engage and do business with the European sector. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it, too, is, you know, we have to have these conversations. And I wish that I felt that these large tech behemoths were, you know, advocating for good privacy. I really do. I, I, I would like them to have that yeah. position. But I think their business models are just show that, that that's not true. Or they want to do it in a way that they're going to claim is privacy friendly. But the reality is, is we just want the choice. Yeah. Right. They, they, they're like, well, you know, I think that's probably some of the problems about flock is it's, it's, it may be more, it may be better for privacy on a whole, but then it takes away my choice for you to be able to collect that information mm. about me to begin with. Right. Speaking of GDPR, the, Euro the European Union really does kind of seem to be leading the way in terms of user-centric privacy rights and, and protections. And I emphasize user there because I, I think that a lot of stuff in the, like, is, again, in the United States, you talk about it's very sectoral or it's very it's still very corporate focused. So first of all, do you think the EU is doing it right? It's a key question. Second, you know, why is the EU so different in this regard when it comes to like with respect to the US or the UK, Australia, we, you know, those countries seem to be a lot different. Is it cultural? Is it political? Financial? What? what why are we different? So for any Europeans listening, I cannot possibly even begin to understand your life or your experience, but here's my general understanding. One, privacy is flat out a human right and defined as a human right in Europe and they've been discussing it as a human right for a very long time. So it's not if they're going to create a law to protect privacy, it's that they must. Mm. Whereas here in the United States, whether or not privacy is a human right is unfortunately a contested topic. 
I believe that it is a human right. I believe that our constitution was written to enumerate privacy rights, but unfortunately the enumeration of privacy rights in the United States is also deeply tied to abortion. Mm. And if we assume or accept as a whole that yes, there is a privacy right, um, there's a certain sector of the United States who fundamentally will not agree with that simply because it might enable abortion rights. Hmm. And I think that's one on the constitutional aspects of privacy in the United States. And then two, if we don't assume that it's a human right, we have, you know, folks who don't believe that regulation can solve problems, Hmm. who don't ever want to even advocate for privacy rights or privacy protections simply by the nature that they believe either the states can handle it better or that capitalism will, will fix it. If people truly want privacy, they'll, they'll actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a little bit of that tide turn in the U.S. with the tech companies. Like I think they're like commonly hated across the aisle. And so <laughs> yeah. folks are starting to say, for whatever selfish reasons, Actually, there, you know, there needs to be some regulation of tech. What does that look like? I think people differ on, but how does privacy interact with that is kind of this larger question that's yet to be seen. And so that's, that's, I think, one big part of it is that like privacy just, you know, isn't a word used in the Bill of Rights. And therefore, people just Mm. kind of don't think of it as a thing that they have as a result you have to read in between the lines whereas it's much more spelled out in europe yeah so speaking of which you know we do have in the u.s some states have passed privacy laws you mentioned ccpa and ccpra the c in that being california and in illinois you know there's there's this patchwork quilt and that's got its pluses and minuses uh you know sometimes the states lead the way and california has often led the way in regulations for the rest of the country and oftentimes things that are happening in california benefit all of us as you say because the Mm -hmm. these companies don't want to do things differently in one state versus the the other 49 um but we really have just failed miserably at the federal level uh and you've talked a little bit about why you think that is but Maybe go like one step further. Like the other problem we seem to have in the United States is even if we do come up with a regulation of some sort, what a lot of people don't realize is until it's too late is behind the scenes. There's a lot more to it than just putting it on paper. I mean, you've got to have you've got to have regulations with teeth. First of all, it can't just be saying don't do this. It's got to say what's going to happen if you don't. You know, what's the carrot and the stick? And then they've got to be backed by regulators, some sort of body, some agency in charge of this that actually has real authority, you know, and a clear remit and sufficient funding, which is often where it falls apart. <laughs> so what do you think it's going to take to actually pull that off? I mean, it just sounds like a Hail Mary given where we're at right now. But is that possible? And if so, what do you think that would look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are a couple of things about federal legislation that I think you know, I one of the missteps that I have seen in proposed bills is they want everything in the kitchen sink mm. without truly understanding what the current landscape is and why the current landscape is the way it is. So I think that's one problem. Second, the proposed bills often don't follow anything like a GDPR like framework. I actually think the friction would be a lot less for compliance and we wouldn't be reinventing the wheel if we took on some of like the requirements of GDPR hmm. and, and adopted them in a way that are very, that mirror one another so mm-hmm. that it's easy. I think the second thing is GDPR is the floor, not the ceiling. Hmm. We shouldn't be thinking about GDPR as the gold standard that we want to strive to. That's the beginning and the start of it. And then how do we build on from there? In the US, right, we think about I think a lot of people are thinking about privacy as it relates to individual rights. Can you stop the sale of your data? Can you get access to your data? Can you tell a company to erase the data they have about you? But how about let's prohibit the activities? And this is one of the things I actually see either going too far where it's like you are about to outlaw an entire industry. And as a result, without understanding why parts of that industry exists, I saw one bill a while ago, I can't remember which one it was, but it essentially just outlawed the sale of data period. Mm. And I actually talked to a staffer 
And I said, hey, you know, what are your intentions here? And they said, yeah, to, just to completely kill the sale of data. And I said, how about threat intelligence data? And they were like, totally should be outlawed. <laughs> and I was like, that's really interesting. Um, and probably pretty problematic because I think no one is going to disagree or maybe some people will disagree that there's some inherent value in yeah. being able to purchase data about threats. Mm-hmm. And what's, if we outlaw that, what are going to be the really bad negative consequences? And so I think people aren't going that one step further to think about it. So to go on my like little tangent here, as we're thinking about regulating actual behavior, we need to come to some sort of flexible framework. And GDPR kind of does this, which through their six legal basis of processing, like you can process data pursuant to a contract. That's a way to do it. Or we need to decide what types of processing are just flat out illegal, like should not happen, absolutely unacceptable. And you're starting to see some of that come out as it relates to biometrics Mm, because people and DNA, because people have these vehement going, wait a second, this is going beyond where I feel really comfortable. And so how do we build a flexible and scalable framework? And that's the problem. I mean, this is the hard thing about writing laws. And I am not a person who writes laws. So I am talking, I'm sure there are people who will listen to this and go, well, you've never tried to write one. You're right. It's, it's definitely hard. But I think talking to the people who are actually trying to do sort of implementation or compliance or, you know, folks in the EU, how they've thought about it, and how it's working and where there are problems would be really, really important dialogue to have. I think, unfortunately, regulators are often having conversations with lobbyists of big tech. Sure. But big tech are just, you know, what, six companies? There are a lot of companies that are going to be affected by privacy laws. And I actually think regulators would, would do better to try to solve for the larger problem and not worry about big tech. And instead, think about what's the middle ground of like all the other companies that are going to be affected and how can we get to the right place? Because, I mean, data brokers are an absolute insane, like we don't even begin to understand. At least with Facebook, I can like choose to not engage for the most part. They track me all over the Internet. But for data brokers, most of them don't have a website. They're like, you know, operating in secret. They only deal with businesses. So even if you did have rights with them, you can't even find how to exercise them. And so you're seeing some of this solved by regulation in in states like, I believe, Maine and and here in California, where you have to register as a data broker. Mm -hmm. But again, to your point, who's actually going after those people and checking to make sure that they're actually registering as a data broker. Otherwise, it's a scuff law. No one's going to actually do it until they're caught or get a slap on the wrist. So I'd love to see a law in the future. I actually think we should start with the basics. I'd love to see something simple. That's just a federal data breach law. Let's let's Hmm. you could knock that one out. Just like get everyone's toes wet to coming to a conclusion that's going to remove our 53, you know, I I say state and and territory data breach notification regime that we all currently live in and just say 72 hours And, 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 you know, Companies are already preparing for that for GDPR. Or if you think, if folks think that's too long, seven days, we can come to a conclusion, but that feels like an easy win to me. And then from there, start having further conversations about what does data protection and privacy look like from at the federal level. I, I, I started my career at the Federal Trade Commission, and I do think that they are the right place hmm. to continue to do this at the federal level. I think that's another place where federal laws tend to, I think, go awry as they want a separate data protection agency. And I think the question I then have is, why do you think that the Federal Trade Commission, which has been doing privacy for the last 25 years, is not the right agency? Why not empower something, a a, a body that already has an interest in it? I think a lot of the reason why the folks don't see more out of the Federal Trade Commission is that they're drastically underfunded and, and they don't have the resources as, as a result of underfunding to, to hire technologists and other experts to really, you know, be an effective regulator or keep up with the changing technology. So let's dig into a couple of things you just mentioned there. First of all, with the FTC, since you've got experience there, what, what do you think of the current uh, administration's appointment uh, for FTC chair? There's been a lot of talk. That was Lisa Kahn, right? 
Yeah, Lena Khan. Lena Khan. Yep. What's your take on her? What and the and the just kind of the Biden administration in general? It seems to me that they're appointing a lot more technologists in key positions. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing. I mean, I'm I'm happy with what I'm seeing from the Biden administration as it relates to the Federal Trade Commission. They still have someone waiting for confirmation. Um, so currently, it's there are just four commissioners, so it's tied at two two, two mm. Democrats and two Republicans, and they're still waiting to confirm that fifth Democrat. And so I think that's really interesting as well, um, because that, you know, having the ability to vote effectively on the FTC mm. is part of like that, the what happens at a change of administration in a Republican administration, there's often three Republicans and two mm. Democrats and vice versa. I don't know, uh, Lena, personally, I've heard wonderful things. I, like the fact that she thinks about problems in a really interesting and new way. Mm. It's not just accepting. And, and again, I'm not an antitrust expert either. I've done very, very little antitrust, but I really like the way that she's thinking about it and how the agency is thinking about privacy as a whole. I think in order to really support privacy cases, and this is having been involved in one is you really have to just have patience because things within the FTC move at a certain pace. And that's nothing to any of the people who work there. There's just a way of going about things that takes time. And so I think that's one of the hard things about the FTC that I'd love to see them improve. And I've seen a little bit of this. They're more transparent about the companies they're investigating. The reason they've traditionally not been transparent about the companies they're investigating is just being under investigation from the FTC is a pretty damning fact right? and pretty scary. Right. The reality is, is I've investigated lots of companies that once I've looked at a few documents, I've said, oh, actually, nope, you haven't done anything wrong. Mm. We can close this up or, oh, yeah, this was a weird bug. I see what happened here. I see that you've corrected it and no amount of Hmm. me bringing uh, a case would fix the problem anymore because you've kind of already come to the right fix. And so I think the question is, is when there are bad actors, how does the FTC really indicate that and move at a more efficient pace? Because I've been involved in cases of the FTC too, where, you know, these large multi-billion dollar companies use all the resources possible and the FTC has a staff of three working on it. Yeah. And that goes to the resourcing problem. How can you keep up? And then you don't want government, you know, you're working for the government at a, at a salary because you're doing service. How do you not burn out when, you know, you have law firms that have infinite amount of resources hmm. coming to kind of squash this at the best they can. And when I would, I was working on one case at one point and it was someone turned over, you know, several hundred thousand pages of documents and it was on me to review page by page. Hmm. And that's what I did for weeks on end and definitely, you know, look through it, but that's a hard thing. And so yeah. if we truly want our regulators to be effective, you have to fund them. And then that's why, you know, it's an interesting topic is if you really, really want some sort of privacy regulation, you have to fund the enforcement. Otherwise it's all talk and no walk. Right. Oh, all right. So one of the things I want to, I want to, and this will lead kind of with go with my next question anyway, and that is one of the, the things that often comes up when we talk about regulation and, and that people push back on is that it just legislation just can't keep up with technology. That the laws are either overly specific and fail to account for new technology, or or they end up being too broad or too vague and end up being ineffective. For example, one of the things that I, you just mentioned that I want to kind of tie into this is data breaches. You talked about we should have a law around. Uh, how we should report data breaches, but there's fine points to that. Like, okay, some people would say, well, if the data is breached, but that data is encrypted, nothing really happened because that data is still un unassailable. It's, it's, they got the data, but they can't do anything with it. So I shouldn't have to report it. Yep. Um, others would say, well, they got data, but it, you know, it doesn't actually affect the customers. It only affects us. So we shouldn't have to report that either. Uh, you know, the, so there's, you know, so there's wiggle room. You got to figure that stuff out. And so Again, that's often a reason, you know, people say, well, that we shouldn't let regulation do this. We should find some other way because tech just can't be regulated. <laughs> so is that the nature of the beast? Uh, or are we just fundamentally doing these legislation, uh, these regulations wrong? 
I think this is one of the tricky things with the law generally as it relates to technology is how do you write it in a tech agnostic way? Mm. Also in a business model company agnostic way, right? One of the interesting things about GDPR is that the law applies to everyone, regulators, agencies, they're mm. all subject to GDPR as well. So if a mm. regulator has a breach, they have to follow GDPR. Mm. There are some that are exempt from the law, but you see often, you know, some of these data protection authorities actually evaluating themselves as it relates to the law. But here in the U.S., we tend to be like, okay, only the companies are subject to this. So how do we build something for companies that have some sort of commercial relationship with the end user? I think we should go broader. One, it should be, are you collecting data? you should be subject to this law. I actually would like to see it more broad and even, and this is where probably there's some debate, but you know, if uh, the California agency that's collecting my vaccine status has a breach, I think I should know. Mm-hmm. And I th- think they should tell me. Mm-hmm. Now, are, are there going to be penalties against them? Uh, that's another question, but I at least right. want to know what's happening. So there are all these different components, knowledge, you know, any sort of punitive situation, you know, are there fines or penalties? Can you actually develop a breach law that works for all? I think you can. The way that GDPR tackles it, and I would say it's not perfect, but it works pretty well, is it's through a harm analysis. So you have to report a breach to a regulator unless you have determined that there is not a risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals who are affected. And so to your point, that would be encryption, or maybe it was breached, but you were able to confirm that no one accessed it, no one used it. You actually were able to wipe it and get all that information. You have some signed affidavit. You're pretty sure like there's very like unlikely risk that to those individuals whose data was affected by that breach. Um, now you don't have to report. Hmm. And then It requires reporting to individuals if there's a high risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals. And so what does high risk mean? I think that's where we'll see it shake out, where we'll see some interpretation and guidance from regulators about Mm. what a high risk means. But I guarantee if your social security number, your national ID, health data, any special category of data, financial, et cetera, in Europe, there are a whole category of special categories of information. If any of that's involved, likely a high risk. And I think that is by definition. And so in the U.S., we can come up with something similar and broad, which is, you know, is there a risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals? And maybe there's uh, some U.S. terms that we use to that because that's, I think, a little bit more close to how the EU talks about the rights of individuals. So, yeah, I mean, I think we can. I think it's interesting. Sometimes I can I imagine and the story I have in my my head is that the security community generally has has self-regulated itself really well through certifications. And I'm sure a lot of people don't like those and through, you know, standards. Um, Mm. It's a little bit harder in privacy because the area is so gray Mm. that you do have to start drawing some lines. And I think with the data breach, you'll have to give some gray standard that won't be abundantly clear and it won't be black and white about whether you have to notify or not, which is how a lot of them are. But I think it can be really helpful because it also then allows for technology to change, right? If it, is it hashed? Is it encrypted? You know, was it a security researcher who found the data? Okay, that's technically a breach, but they've guaranteed that, you know, they've returned the data and they have no copies. Is there likely a risk here? No, probably then don't need to do breach notification. And I think we should come to an agreement on what those scenarios are and then move forward so that we can actually like as an end user I can expect when somebody is going to tell me about a breach and I should expect to understand where I can find out that information on a somewhat tangent when I was in eighth grade I applied for a high school to high school um, and at some point I must have given over my social security number I'm not even sure I was the one who gave over my social Mm -hmm. security number could have been my parents Mm -hmm to apply for this high school. And a year and a half ago, I got a letter in the mail from that high school, which I never attended, that they had a breach of my information. (laughs) Wow. My social security number and other data related to my application. First of all, what the hell? Like, 
why did you still have my data? Right. So what I, I, I ended up calling the school because I was like, I'm very interested in what's going on here. And they had said to me that they used an education vendor mm-hmm. who they digitized all of their records. And so here we have some interesting things around data collection, data minimization, and data retention. We, we have no laws around it, no guidance right. around it. Yep. I mean, the FTC says some things, but we're not really seeing. And they're thinking they're doing the right thing by just digitizing everything instead of like being empowered to just delete data. Mm. That education vendor, apparently when you went in and deleted your data, um, so maybe they deleted my records after they were digitized, they said, oh, actually, we don't need this, didn't actually delete data. Mm. They just didn't. They, they soft deleted it, uh, um, which is not a thing. Anyone listening, I'm sure the security <laughs> community can all agree that soft deletion is not a thing. If you're going to delete data. It needs to be gone forever. But now nothing's happening. I mean, I hope they're being investigated, but I thought, boy, do I feel helpless. They're like, yeah. here's your credit monitoring. And I'm, I'm just surprised they <sighs> right. were able to find me. Right, sure. So I, I, yeah, so I think regulation, I've gone on a long tangent, but I think regulation can fix things like this so we can have some expectations about what's going to happen with our data after a period of time so we can like take a breath before worrying that something that you didn't even realize was happening out of the blue was breached. So let me see if I can paraphrase it back to you. So what I heard was, and we talked a lot about data breaches in particular, but for technology in general, writing legislation and around technology and putting rules in a game, you know, any, any game worth playing has got rules and it's got referees. We, we should start broad uh, and try to be technology agnostic so that we don't get caught up in particulars and, and leave loopholes and then refine as we go. Does that, does that yeah. sound like a fair paraphrase where your, your point was? I think that was better than I said it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So to this point, this is something that kind of irks me. And I think you might be in a perfect position to answer this question. And that is unlike any other industry I can think of, tech industries don't seem to be liable for privacy or security issues with their products. And I'm sure that that is pr- probably somehow because of terms of service or licensing agreements that no one ever reads, you know, they kind of get, you know, they write themselves a free ticket you know, to, to be absolved of these things ahead of time. And we're not giving a choice. I mean, if you open the package, you've agreed to the agreement in a lot of cases, which you find out after you've opened the package, it's that bad. But we also kind of blame the victims too. I mean, you know, we also say, you know, if they'd only had better passwords or if they just used two-factor authentication or if they hadn't overshared on social media. So so why is the software or internet industries, why, how are they somehow totally different than like Ford or your fridge maker or anybody else who screws up that might cause harm and, and they could be sued? Why, why, why is this industry any different? That's a great question. So, oh man, I'm sure that there's a lawyer out there who specializes in tort tort law, which is, you know, what governs a lot of that product liability and, and other issues. Um, I'm not a tort, tort specialist, but those are born out of common law. So um, if something happened, somebody sued about it. And eventually there was enough case law over a period of time that like basically laws developed as a result of the harms continuing to persist. Mm. So if common law is to ever develop out of privacy, I think we it will still take some time to do um, as people feel like maybe there aren't things that actually protect them. You know, does it, how will it shake out? So is part of the problem then is that harm is hard to prove in this case? Because a lot, even, yes. take privacy, because a lot of times when data is leaked, companies will say, well, well, not, nothing's happened. I mean, until that person is a, a victim of identity theft, there hasn't been harm. Exactly right. So I think, one, proving the harm aspect of it is, is one part of it. The second part is, you know, what should the liability be, especially when privacy and security, like, accidents happen? What's the right balance of determining, okay, maybe a bunch of bad things happened, but it was a crazy string of events and there's nothing this that, you know, anyone could have done to prevent this. Right. And then two, you know, it was clear that they were very negligent and they weren't mm. doing the right things and they weren't patching when they were told. Those are two different scenarios. So mm-hmm. 
to, to give some historical context, the Federal Trade Commission has its powers under something called the FTC Act. It, it, one in particular is Section 5 of the FTC Act, which regulates unfair and deceptive practices. This is a very broad mandate. This is mm. where you're getting marketing and advertising regulation, right, yeah. et cetera. But it is also the foundation of the FTC's regulation of privacy and data security in the United States, deception and unfairness. And so from a deception perspective, what you have is if you said you did something and you didn't do it, that's deceptive to consumers. And in pr the privacy and security space, saying things like we're very, very secure or military grade, right? right like all right. of those things like as dumb as it may sound, those things create a public perception that you take privacy and security seriously, that you actually do something about it, that you have these regimes that protect the data. So if it turns out in an investigation of a company that you don't actually have a security program and that you're saying you have really great security, that's deceptive. Because otherwise, maybe people wouldn't have chosen right, to yeah. engage with you, use your application, whatever it may be. There's the other part, which is unfairness. And unfairness is the more hot topic of the FTC, which is if you are doing something that is inherently unfair to customers or consumers, should it be, you know, regulated or, you know, should you get in trouble for it? And Security is often the big one as it relates to unfairness, which is if you just have no security, right? You built an application that's collecting social security numbers and you've done nothing to protect it. That's inherently unfair. And there have been a lot of pushback from generally libertarian um, mm. or, or Republican saying that's an overreach of unfairness to apply to something like security. And so as a result, you have the FTC trying to regulate security a little bit more, but getting this litigation pushback, uh, challenging the FTC's ability to go after security under unfairness to begin with, which then leaves us with like just deception. So if it's just deception, then people are going to put disclosures everywhere saying, you will, you know, we can't guarantee perfect security. We do sure. the best we can. And that's the regime we currently live in and why we need a federal regulation that goes beyond just what the FTC has been doing as a result of the FTC just using unfairness and deception as it relates to their privacy and data security regulation, you know, movements. We have this whole, you know, probably 25 years, 20 years of what they call FTC common law. And it's all of the different cases that the FTC has brought over time against companies for privacy and data security. And that's where you start to see what behaviors are actually problematic. And one of them that has come out of this is not patching vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. They've said, if you're not patching vulnerabilities and you know about that vulnerability, we're coming for you. And that's really, really bad for consumers. You've been put on notice that you have a security issue, you need to then fix it. And there was something, I guess the FTC posted, a, their technologist team posted something about Log4j and everyone was kind of freaking out about it relatively <laughs> recently. Yep. Oh my God, I can't believe the FTC. And I looked at that and I thought, that's always been true. It's been true for a long time, but the FTC is actually being much clearer that this is something they can go after you for. So if there's a breach in the future, of your company and it's as a result it's a result of log4j the ftc is going to say you've been you know you got notice from cisa you got notice from us you know yeah. it, it was all over the news right you should have known at this point and done something about it and that's about on par for where the where the ftc can act as it relates to security vulnerabilities or bugs or something about that but if we want to go further than that there has to i think there has to be more regulation what is it like inside tech companies today? Like this is maybe a unique perspective you could give us. What what does a privacy team even look like? You know, assuming a company even has one, which hopefully at this point, at least the bigger ones, you know, hopefully do. But you know, maybe not. What what does what does that look like? What do they do? And is it a bunch of lawyers, or is it maybe some engineers as well? 
And then maybe how does that relate to the security team? It seems to me that, you know, privacy is kind of where security was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you know, where mm -hmm. we kind of kind of a big thing and companies started funding it and having a whole department named that, <laughs> you know, so what what is it like today? Give us a glimpse into what it what it's like inside of a corporation trying to staff up for privacy. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think what's really interesting is security is like the need for a security team to me feels not born out of regulation, but as a result of like actually wanting to protect data, feeling like they need to protect data for reputational and, you know, yes, data breaches are scary, but you know, there's something more to why a security team was needed within a company. And there was a shift at some point. I can't quite say what it was. I'm sure someone listening to this is like, this is what I think it is. Um, but privacy teams exist primarily because of two things. Either one, your company was under an FTC consent order, which usually were about 20 years long. And that means the FTC can come and audit you and, you know, fine you if you have bad privacy practices, if you screw up within, within those 20 years, or you were in a highly regulated space like HIPAA, finance, mm. credit reporting, mm -hmm. and only very recently to comply with GDPR. Mm. And so when I first entered the privacy field, my choices were basically go work for the FTC or go work for a company that had gotten in trouble with the FTC. <laughs> And to, to, to do privacy, or maybe I could go into health or, or, or finance. And really, that's not what I wanted to do if I really wanted to improve privacy. And then there was a shift. GDPR came out and people started building up their teams because GDPR put a lot of re privacy requ compliance requirements on companies. And so as a result, the legal team often took on that compliance effort and built the privacy team within legal because you're not you see some security teams within legal, but for the most part, they, they live in a CIO or an engineering org. I think privacy living within legal is, is very, very common mm -hmm. and very, very interesting. I think there is there are some companies that bifurcate privacy. You have a legal set of lawyers, and then you have other parts of the privacy team, sometimes that live within security orgs. Sometimes they live within engineering orgs. But ultimately, the vast majority of them, I think, are born out of a legal org and are comprised mostly of attorneys. I think we are in the very, very, very nascent stages of what privacy looks like in a company. I think that it will not be forever that privacy teams will live within legal orgs. I think them being their own complete function could be a future. And you know, you hear some security folks talk about this, like a, a CISO reporting to the CEO. What does that look like? Maybe it's more of a greater data protection org. I think Twitter's done something kind of similar, but I think ultimately privacy just being a lawyer thing is, is not the future for privacy. So a lot of orgs have a lot of privacy attorneys. I'm a privacy attorney, um, but I think it's a deeply cross-functional field it, in many ways like security is. And as a result, we have to set up the org to be able to work cross-functionally. And maybe that's for now, I think a lot of them have privacy legal teams, and then you have a privacy engineering team, and then maybe you have some privacy specialists within a security risk and compliance team because you're worrying about, okay, the SOC 2s, the ISOs, the auditing, you want to empower them to also take on kind of the privacy side of the house there. And I think that's probably the most common mid to big size setup. But I, I'm curious if, you know, at some point that will all get consolidated. I think we'll see it be very different hmm. company to company for a long time. But what I'd really like to encourage is that people who are building privacy teams, um, especially since it's often a lawyer not assume that lawyers can solve every problem. Um, it's really, really important to hire for privacy cross-functionally, and it's going to really, really empower your ability to protect data if you're thinking about how can you hire non-lawyers, um, engineers, and others to kind of achieve your mission. Yeah, it's at engineering. We talk about privacy by design, and and for me, one of the concepts in 
in recent software engineering was what we call shift left, which is on a time scale, that means get it done earlier, basically earlier in the process and, mm-hmm. and you know, trying to, you know, if you bake the privacy and security into the product from the get go, it's a lot easier on the, than trying to doing it at the back end uh, and doing it, you know, by covering your butt with, you know, compliance instead of, yeah. So I'd certainly, as an engineer, I'm kind of biased, but I, I hope that we get no, a lot more I, engineers involved. No, I completely involved. agree with you. I wish the venture capitalist community would take more of an effort to encourage privacy and security at the offset. I, you know, if we think about, you know, if the FTC starts to care more about companies in their nascent stages, right, having an inquiry from the FTC when you're a small startup is going to change the future of your company. Um, you are going to be thinking about privacy a lot more than a company who thought, oh, I can get away with not doing this thing. Like There should be fundamental principles as they relate to privacy by design that every company should be building from the offset. Yep. It was really interesting. I was talking to someone the other day and they says, they said to me, well, like, you know, do they really have to do this under X, Y, and Z? And I said, well, do you have to pay your taxes? Like, no, was, you know, like for the, for the most part, no one is like saying, oh, I mean, there, there are lots of tax loopholes, but, you know, no one doubts that companies, you know, should follow the law and pay their taxes. And no one's, you know, people play games with loopholes, but that's very, for the most part, there's right. very clear regulations around that and what can be done and what cannot be done. Because the SEC will come. (laughs) They will come. With privacy, somehow people have this notion where they're like, well, I won't get caught. Or, oh, it's gray. No one will, like, I'll just do this slightly sketchy thing. Like, it's because I do believe that they also don't think they're going to get caught. And this is nothing to say that of things that I've, I've seen in any of the places I've worked. It's just mostly as it relates to, you know, these theoretical conversations that I have with people about why I don't think, you know, we're going to be able to self-regulate. Like the tech industry can't self-regulate is there's too many gray areas of what people feel is acceptable from a privacy perspective. The, the ethics is no one can agree on common principles, at least in security, we can agree that things should be secure in privacy. If you say we all should agree that things should be private, no one understands what private then means. (sighs) Right. Right. We don't have a common vocabulary and understanding of what that means. And so as a result, it's, it's a debate and we don't know. And so some of these more black and white frameworks like paying your taxes or not paying your taxes are a lot easier for people to say, well, this makes a lot of sense I can do. So how do we build out kind of some of these black and white things like principles that people can maybe say, I either do or don't do this thing, as opposed to talking about, is this privacy or isn't this privacy? Like, and this goes to privacy by design. Data, if I delete something in the user interface, it should delete, hard delete from the systems, period. That should be a common principle that every single tech company follows unless I have an obligation to keep it by law. Hmm. Right. And that's it. And then you should be able to disclose that. This data is being deleted unless I have to keep it by law. And there are lots of places you have to keep invoices for 10 years. You have tax obligations and data that you have to keep as, a re- as it relates to that. So if we can come up with some things that are less controversial and more, and that's why I kind of lean towards the data breach law as a good first step, then maybe we can make some real in like progress uh, as it relates to actually building privacy within companies. All right. So as we wrap up here, um, what did, what do you think the future of privacy looks like, given all that we've talked about today? What what are the what are maybe the biggest threats now? I guess we've talked about some of them. And what's like coming over the horizon? And what do you think it's going to take to eliminate or mitigate these threats? I guess the regulation will be the obvious answer, given what we talked about. But looking ahead, do you see the things changing? Are there new threats on the horizon? What, what do you think the near-term future of privacy is going to be? That's a good question. I think near term, we're just going to see a lot of patchwork, right? I think we're going to see every state tackling privacy in some different way. I think as a result, the industry is going to be heavily driven by regulation. People are going to enter the field because there is a demand to follow the law as opposed to ethically, this is the right thing to do. And we want to build a team that helps us achieve those goals. I think we will see a lot 
expect more from the EU. I think GDPR is not the end for them. I think we're going to see a lot more regulation, whether we all agree on it or not, that are going to continue to move the conversation forward. It will be interesting how other major countries in the world also engage in privacy. China has a major privacy law that PIPL that folks are talking about. India is currently considering a law, a a privacy law that originally um, was about personal data. And I think over the Christmas holiday, the New Year, New Year, Christmas holiday, um, they actually dropped personal data from from the scope. It's actually all data. Um, And so we're starting to see, I think privacy is not going to just be about personal data. We're going to be talking much more broadly about data because everything is personal data under these definitions or it's per- it's assumed personal data until right. you can prove it's not. And so I think that's going to be a big sh- a shift that we continue to see. I would hope that we're going to see some really interesting stuff from the FTC. So in the US um, and then in California, I don't think we even know where it's like what we're likely going to see, but the continuation of regulation of the ad tech industry what's the future of cookie banners? Are they working or are we going to move to something much more restrictive because otherwise it's a -a whack-a-mole trying to get everyone to comply. Right. All right. So wrapping up, given that this is data privacy week, uh, you being a privacy person, um, what advice might you have for the audience for protecting their privacy today? Like what are some of your top tips when you're going, when you're sitting around the dinner table or family and friends or uh, drinks or whatever, and someone inevitably asks you, Hey, you're a privacy person. What do you recommend I do? Uh, And then follow up to that. If if people want to take the next step, if they want to like learn more, like, you know, for me, Data Privacy Week, I, I've been telling these people, you know, telling the audience about things for a long time now. But so this would be a great opportunity to take it that next step. If you think you're doing OK on that is to, you know, how do they learn more? You know what? You know, yeah. or if they want to get involved, you know. So anyway, what recommendations might you give the audience? So um, I think an easy one for ad tech is to use a, a browser that has privacy defaults. So not Chrome. Um, Firefox, Safari, and Brave are all going to be better than Chrome. So I would say that's one easy kind of switch you can make in your life that's going to have probably an impact that you don't see, but it is having an impact because if it's about market, walk with your feet. The second is, and this is a security tip, use a password manager. Mm. It really does. It does help. Um, Use 2FA. Privacy cannot be done without security. Yeah. And data protection cannot be done without security. So you also need to take your security seriously in order to protect your own privacy. So update your computers when new updates come. You know, consider looking at your privacy settings when you're setting something up. Um, I you can't be buy an unsmart television these days. Right. But there are there are several settings within my smart television that I have turned off. Or I never accepted the terms because I didn't want to have them right. have access to that data or feature. So as a result, you know, spend the extra time and look at that stuff, but pick the places where it matters to you most. And so there's a it's very, very easy to get privacy fatigue where you feel like oh, yeah. nihilist, where you can't control yeah. it. So yeah. figure out what are the things that are really important and focus on those. And then you'll feel like you're getting more bang for your buck because you've tackled the things you care about the most. Um, And some people don't care about advertisements. So maybe making that switch doesn't make sense, but they really are worried about their banking. And so if you're really worried about banking and your financial privacy, the reality is all the banks sell your data or share your data in some reality because there is no law preventing that and they're looking to get their money Ask those questions, see if maybe there's an option for something that's a little bit more privacy friendly. This is something I've not actually solved for myself, but um, there are some options potentially there too, if you really care. If you want to take the next step and maybe get involved, I mean, you mentioned the yep. EFF. I've talked about donating to those guys. What organizations, you know, do you think would be good to support or, and what maybe web resources, if I want to learn more, where, where would you go? 
Yeah, absolutely. So lots and lots of choices. So I love the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They're always a good resource. The ACLU also has stuff on privacy if you're talking more about the civil liberties aspect of of both. The other kind of resources that exist out there, a big behemoth in the area is the IAPP, which is the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Mm -hmm. They have lots and lots of privacy data and resources. If you're interested in what's going on in Europe, Um, There's the European Data Protection Board that is constantly pushing up guidance and information about privacy as it relates to Europe. Twitter is a great resource. There are lots of amazing privacy professionals on Twitter. I highly encourage that you go and seek out some and follow and see the resources Mm -hmm. that they're sharing. One of the more interesting and, and full disclosure, I have a professional relationship with them. And so in the FTC regulates the endorsement guide. So I should be very clear that I have a direct relationship with them. But there is this company called Data Protocol that is starting to do privacy engineering training hmm. for engineers. And I think that's interesting. I, I yeah. mean, like, obviously, I'm involved with them. But I think starting to have more training resources as it relates to privacy by design. So they're one resource that, that I think is interesting and is to, to keep an eye out for. And then obviously the Federal Trade Commission. They issue lots and lots of uh, guidance for businesses. Some of it is a little bit older than others, but generally their principles apply. You know, they have good guidance that they provide to companies and individuals about their own privacy and security. And I highly recommend checking them out as well and their resources. Um, if you have ever suffered from identity theft, likely somebody has re- has pointed you to FTC yep. resources right. since that's that's also what they worry about. Well, Wendy, that was extremely informative. It's great to have your insight on that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really glad to have had Whitney on the show. That was a lot of fun. For my patrons, there will be some bonus content coming. We talked about giving presentations at tech conferences and how to submit a good proposal and give a good presentation. And we didn't talk about it really in the interview, but she's the one who started and runs the Crypto and Privacy Village at the DEF CON Hacking Conference. So I asked her a little bit about how that got started and what they do there. So anyway, if you're a patron, expect that to be coming out uh, the next day or so. Okay, so my listener survey. I've got to run it till the end of the month, which if you're looking at the calendar means you've got about eight more days. So I'll, I'll remind you one last time next Monday. It's an arbitrary date, but I don't want to let it run forever. So I got to cut it off somewhere. And also, because I want to give away some prizes to incentivize you to answer the listener survey, I got to cut that off somewhere as well. So prizes, the top prize, the big winner I will randomly choose from the people who give me their contact information will get a signed copy of my book, a copy of Privacy is Power by Carissa Valise, and a Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons challenge coin. So quite the prize bundle for the top winner. And for the next four winners, meaning there will be a total of five, I'm going to give away a free PDF copy of my book. So obviously for the PDFs, all I need is an email address. Uh, I ask you to give me that information in the in the thing if you want to enter to win a prize. And by the way, for all the people that have entered, there's actually not that many of them have given me the contact information. So, so what that means is your chance of winning actually is not that bad. So uh, anyway... Get that in soon, and maybe you'll win the prize. Now, how do you turn it in? Well, the, I've got a little link in the show notes, of course. It's, But you might be able to just remember this. It's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, bit.ly slash firewalls dash survey dash 2022. And the F in firewalls there is capitalized. So bit.ly slash firewalls dash survey dash 2022. You've got eight more days. All right, as I said, next week I've got another privacy interview, and this one will be with Kelly Finnerty from StartPage. Uh, if you haven't heard of StartPage, they are a privacy-centric search engine, kind of like DuckDuckGo, which I have mentioned several times on this show and talk about it a lot of places. But StartPage is very interesting. They actually, behind the scenes, they use Google. They actually give you Google's results. They just strip out all the tracking. And why does Google allow them to do this? Well, Kelly will explain that to us next week. But it's not about StartPage. It's going to be about privacy in general. And uh, she's got some really interesting takes on, on privacy. 
Now, obviously, I've been focused on privacy a lot, this being Data Privacy Week, but we've got some security-related interviews in the hopper that will be coming up soon, some really interesting topics there, and guests that I've never had on the show before, topics we've never covered before. I'm also probably going to do a show on de-googling your life. This came up a couple times in the listener survey. And as we all know, because I <laughs> declared it publicly here, I'm trying to finish de-googling my life uh, as part of my New Year's resolutions for 2022. So uh, I think I'm going to spend some time on that in a show in the not-too-distant future. I've been doing a lot of research in particular on replacing Google Docs, and I've got a line on what I think is going to be my final solution there that I think you might find interesting. One more quick note before we go. I just got off a phone call last week with uh, my editor at uh, A-Press, my publisher, and it looks like we're good to go for doing a fifth edition of the book, probably by Christmas. I want to have it out by Christmas so that people can give it as gifts, and also because I'm probably going to be teaching my class on security and privacy at uh, the Duke Ollie program in spring, so I would like to have it ready for that. And I want to wait for the next macOS release, which usually comes out in September, so I'm going to try to make sure I cover that in this book as well. And I'll cover Windows 11, though, honestly, it's not so far much different than Windows 10. But it's, you know, it's good when the book says on the cover that it covers Windows 11, because that's what people want to see. And so it'll give me a chance to update all the screenshots and instructions and all that stuff and keep get it nice and current. So if all goes well, that will be out before the end of this year. All right, that's going to do it today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, got another great privacy-related interview next week to neatly bookend Data Privacy Week. And then we'll have a big news show after that. So take care, everybody. Until next week, as always, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.